tonight, Judges chapter 3, please. We are going to be looking tonight at Ehud. Ehud. This is, uh, this is a fantastic story about how God's grace and power shows up in weakness. How many of you have a disability of some type in this room? It's okay. Yeah, anybody? Yeah, same here. Same here. Anybody else? You've got something, and maybe there's something in your life that you wish you could do, but you just can't. That was me. You know a little bit of my story. For uh, almost seven years in school, I was in speech therapy. I had uh, issues with speaking. And so think about that for a second. I'm, I'm speaking probably on the average of 150 times a year now. This is how God uses people. The idea often in the world is that God uses people's strengths. But the reality is God actually calls people in their weakness. And, and often we're thinking that God is most interested in our ability when the reality is he's most interested in our availability. I want you to think for a moment in the New Testament. Do you know the one miracle that happens in all four of the Gospels, all three of the Synoptics and John. One miracle mentioned in all of them, only one. The loaves, and it says in the King James, bad English, fishes, okay? Think about that for a second. We're talking about a young boy's lunch that was not enough, that God used to feed 5,000 people. And back then, you know, they only counted the guys. So they didn't count the dudettes, they didn't count the rest of the family, so there was probably more than 5,000 in that crowd. You know, I've been to that part of Israel by the Sea of Galilee, and it's very, very interesting. It's a lush area. Um, it's a neat area. If you wanted to preach to people, it is a natural amphitheater. The, the ground actually goes straight up, just like an amphitheater would, and it reaches down to the very bottom where there's water. How many of you know that uh, water is very conductive for sound? And Jesus used that environment in order to preach to these people. But how many of you know that even in preaching, having the best preacher, the best avenue or location for preaching, a hungry crowd is probably not a crowd you want to preach to. And yet Jesus takes a little boy's happy meal, come on, multiplies it, feeds everybody. That's the one miracle that made sure to end up in all the Gospels. Why? Because it's a story of weakness. It's not a story of strength. It's not a story of more than enough. It's a story of not enough. It's a story of you and I. It's a story of Ehud. And it's a story of who God uses. want to ask tonight, we're going to get into this a little bit here, about this guy's life, because there's some interesting facts. And by the way, gross alert, there is some gross stuff in this story, okay? If you never heard it before, I'm only going to read the Bible. I'm not going to read the book of Glenn. But some gross things happen in this story tonight. That's okay. God uses that too. How many of you know that this judge used by God was a lefty? He was a southpaw. How many lefties do we have in this church? Awesome. God bless you. Got to ask you lefties. See, my wife is a lefty. My son is a lefty. They're both southpaws. The rest of the family, the girls and I are, are righties. How many of you lefties just get absolutely frustrated by the world by the time you're maybe eight or nine years old? Right? Is it, is it fun holding scissors that are built for right-handed people? Come on. 
Now, okay, my wife's here. We're going to hear comments now. Because she is the No, she's the world she's the world's foremost authority on left-handedness. Okay? How about this? How about how about the zipper on your pants? Right, lefties? Think about this for a second. The zipper is covering the place where you'd normally reach inside to zip. Right? So righties take all this stuff for granted that lefties have to deal with every stinking day of their lives. Come on. Right? Is there anything else that's odd for lefties? Come on, help me out. Writing. So when you write across the page, you're writing with your left hand, you start to smear. Come on. See, righties, we're, we don't know this stuff. We don't know what it's like to live our lives as a lefty. Ehud was a lefty. And it's important to notice that. I'm going to explain in a minute why, but I want to show you throughout history how left-handed people have been judged by the world. Did you know, watch this, the French word for left is gauche. Every time you say gauche, you're speaking French. Did you know that? Oh, gauche, right? It means awkward. That's what it means. The Latin word for left is sinister. It's the same word for evil. You, to give someone the evil eye would be to give them the left eye, right? It, it'd, be, it'd be to do something with your left hand. Why was doing something with your left hand unclean and bad? Because that was the bathroom hand. Are you awake tonight? Yeah. yeah. So you didn't, you didn't try to shake hands with your left. You didn't try to do things with your left because that was the hand you used to do other things with, right? So it was the sinister hand. Lefties were... Lefties were considered to be weak. In fact, the word left in English, the old English word for left, means weak. Weakness. And it just so happens that we're talking about weakness tonight. We're talking about, about a guy who was one of Israel's judges that was left-handed. Why is it so important that he's left-handed? Because in the background of our text tonight, we're going to discover the Bible says he's left-handed probably because he is disabled. He, he is either born with a withered right hand or he's born with a, uh, without a, a right arm or hand at all. And so the Bible says he's left-handed on purpose, not just because it's some type of trivial thing. The Bible is saying it because this is a disability. You see, everyone that went off to war used their right hand for a sword, and their left hand for a shield. Here's why. Where's your heart? Right? So to go off to war, that's how you train no matter which hand you were. And for an Israelite judge to be used by God and to be a lefty, this is more than just saying he used his left hand. This is saying he's got a disability. He has a weakness. But before we get to the story, I want to read a little bit about what is going on in the background of why God raised this judge up. Look at verse 1. It says, Now these nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, watch this, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was, number one, in order that the generations of people of Israel might know war. Watch that. To teach war to those who had not known it before so god left these people for two reasons to test them and to train them to test them and to train them now here's what we know about the canaanites 
and the Moabites and the Midianites. All right? These guys were left in the land because the Israelites did not follow all the commands of God. Hello. So God says, you didn't obey me, but that's not going to take me by surprise. I'm going to use that anyway. And so God starts out this chapter by saying, I'm going to use those people that are left in the land to teach you and to train you. Can I just ask you something right now? Think about this. Why does God leave temptation in your life? Why doesn't God, who saved us on the cross and changed us from the inside out, why doesn't, why doesn't God, as soon as we get saved, just take us home? Why does God leave us here with the enemy? Think about this. To teach us and to train us. But God, I'm so weak. God, I still deal with the same issue. God, I'm still going through some of these things in my life. Why are you, God, why are you leaving me in the rinse and repeat cycle? Let me show you why. In your weakness, you and I are learning to lean on Jesus. And we're learning how spiritual things work. Spiritual things don't work through your power. I said spiritual things don't work through your power. They work through his. And God will leave you in situations until you get that. And the lesson will be repeated until it's learned. So how many times do you want to go around the same mountain? This is what happens to Israel. They didn't drive out the enemy. God says, well, I'll use the enemy. Can I tell you that from the beginning, Satan's been on a leash with God? Can I just tell you that he's been on a leash all along? And that whatever the devil does, in the end, God's going to use for good for those that love him or to call according to his purpose. Doesn't that get you excited tonight that there's not anything happening in your life that God can't teach you and train you with? Hello. So that's the two things we learn. Imagine you're an Israelite child. You're coming home from Shabbat. You speak to your dad. You see these Canaanites, these Moites, these Midianites. And you say, Dad, why are these people still here? And dad says, well, son, let me tell you, we disobeyed the Lord in the past. So they're, they're here because we didn't do what God told us to do. Then the son says, well, isn't our God a good God? Couldn't he raise up some like hyenas or something and run them all out, right? Couldn't, couldn't God bring some, some bears out of the forest? Lions and tigers and bears? Oh my. And drive them away? And God says through the dad, young man, that's still in your life to teach you to train you. It's set for war. You need to learn how to fight. Come on, boo-boo people. You need to learn how to fight. That's still in your life because you haven't learned how to fight spiritually yet. Hello. All right. So that's the answer. Let's jump on down here. Let's look at verse 12. Othniel dies. Israel does what is right in their own eyes. That's a repeat throughout this book. Verse 12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave King Eglon. Now there's a name, like egging you on. Here's Eglon. The Lord gave King Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. And then for 14 years, he pillages, he murders, he rapes the Israelites. Verse 15. And again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left Hello, come on, say it with me. A left-handed man. Come on, let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we only got a few minutes left, but God, 
I pray in Jesus' name that we'd see our weaknesses as strength in you. That, God, we would start taking an inventory of what you can do and your strength in our life. And stop taking an inventory, God, of what we can't do in our strength in our lives. God, help us to learn victory this way. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, come on. Amen, amen, amen. Verse 16. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long. Now, you know this. A cubit, an Israelite cubit, is from the elbow all the way to the top of the hand. Now, imagine a personal dagger that long. Can you hold on to the image of how long this is? This is important. Because as he shoves it into this eglon, <laughs> just hold on to how long it is, okay? All right? And it says, he strapped it to his right thigh under his clothing. This is some kind of conceal and carry knife for sure. He presented tribute to Eglon, who was a very what? He was a fat man. Not with a P-H-A-T, an F-A-T, fat man. Does that sound like an irreverent detail? It is not. It is certainly relevant as well. Verse 18, after Ehud had presented tribute, here's what he says, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. You know, I got to come up close. I got to tell you, I got a secret. Now, he's a fat man. Maybe he thinks, hey, you brought me a treat. We're going to share it together. Maybe he thinks for a second there, maybe you brought some Cracker Jacks. Remember, Cracker Jacks had the secret surprise inside, and you didn't really buy it, the box of Cracker Jacks, for the Cracker Jacks, right? You bought it for the stupid little top that you'd spend for about five minutes, and you'd go on with the rest of your life. Nobody ever had Cracker Jacks. Okay, praying for you. Amen. Yeah. Come on. You'd come back to eating it later after the cat got in it. Come on. But, but you know, Cracker Jack. He said, yeah, come on down. You know, you already paid tribute. Why do you think this king is so secure? Yes. There's nothing he can do to me. <laughs> this is the position of the enemy and the devil in your life now. Look, boys, there's nothing... That, that that believer can do about what they're in. We got them. We got them. And if they're going to do anything, they're going to work for us. They're going to pay tribute. They're going to they're make sure that we're well supp supplied. In fact, hey guys, hey minions, we're going to get them to do our work for us. And here's this moment where he doesn't know that in all of his overconfidence, this guy... Ehud is full of the Holy Spirit and has a sword that's strapped this long to his thigh. Can you imagine strapping that to your thigh, right? And you've got that at ready access, and you've only got one. It's on the right thigh, sorry. So you've only got one, uh, one arm that's working, and here's your left, and it's over here. Imagine this. He's got to come down here. He's got to grab this sword. He's got to pull it out. Imagine how overconfident this king must have been. He said, you can come as close as you want because you're a weak man. You're a lefty. There's nothing you can do to me. In fact, he's so confident that he sends all of the men out of the room. They all leave. And he says, come right up. Tell me the secret. I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> he says, leave us. They all left. Verse 20. The king rose up from his seat. Watch this. Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, 
plunged it into the king's belly. And let's have some fun tonight because it says even the handle sank in after the blade and the bowels of the king discharged. Well, that's a pleasant thought. Thank you for coming to church tonight. Can you imagine the sound? This man must have been so... Can I remind you how long the blade is? He had to be at least that fat. And when that blade went into him, he put the whole thing in, including the handle. And then the fat closed in around the blade. Yes! You guys are doing better than me tonight. Yes! This is the demise of this king. He's fat, he's lazy, he's overconfident. There's nobody that can touch me. And God, and their God, and their, and their king, and their, well, they don't have a king yet, but their lands, it doesn't matter, it doesn't amount to anything. They can't touch us. And here's this moment where this, here's this moment where this man who is considered disabled in his disability takes a sword this long and puts it all the way into the enemy. And then the fat closes around it and then other nasty stuff comes out. <laughs> uh, I think the NIV literally says the dung came out. That's pretty gross, right? Okay, good. I'm glad you think it's gross. Verse 23, Then Ahud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him, locked them. And after he had gone, the servants came, found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself. Why do you think they said he must be relieving himself? Because it smelled. So they just, they just stayed on the other side. Meanwhile, God uses this judge. He goes out back to Israel, gets all the troops together all at once, says, I just took the biggest sword I could possibly, or dagger I could make, put it all the way through the king. Let's go get them, boys. And get them, they do. <laughs> Verse 25, it says, they're waiting here to the point of embarrassment. Maybe they're telling each other jokes like this. Any movement in there? Not yet, but I can sure smell something, right? Verse 25, they didn't open the doors of the room. They took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord had fallen to the floor dead. Verse 30, that day Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Let's talk about the principles here. I want you to learn these principles here. God sent the Savior, the strongest man that could ever be spiritually sent, in weakness. You are so, and I am so focused on our inability or ability to do something that God says, I'm not concerned with either. What I'm really concerned with is your availability. No matter if you're weak or you're strong, doesn't matter to the Lord. It doesn't add up for him at all. When you are God and king and have all the power and omnipotence in the universe, what you and I have to offer him always comes up as a goose egg. He doesn't need it. What he's looking for is an unqualified yes and a crucified no. It's a life that starts telling God whenever the Holy Spirit says, I've empowered you to do it, you do it. Without saying, it's not my gifting. Without saying, I don't have enough people that have told me I'm good at it yet. 
You don't need that anyway, because that's the first two or three weeks of American Idol. Come on. Everybody tells those folks they're good singers. And I stop watching after three weeks, just like you do, because they're not good singers. The point is, God isn't looking for good when you can have the grade of his spirit in what he's called you to do. Let me remind you, I spent seven years of my life at school just trying to learn to read and speak. I'm not doing anything in my life that is any good for God if it isn't done by his spirit and his spirit alone. Think about this for a second. Number one, God's Savior would not only come in weakness, but everyone that God has used, God has set up the story. So it was a story of weakness when God used him. Do you know when God will give you your next victory? When you realize that you're not enough. In your humility and in your bended knee moments, when you rely fully on God's strength and you've come completely to the end of your rope is when the 1159 hour God comes through. Not in any of your pride, (laughs) not in any of your strength. Can I tell you that the whole story of Judges is God really raising up weak people. And don't for a second tell me Samson was a, a, a strong judge because he wasn't. There isn't anything in the Bible that says Samson had muscles. Read it. The power that came on Samson was from the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God alone. You've been taught wrong in Sunday school with the flannel graphs, with the Samson with the big biceps. It's not in the Word of God. Every one of the judges, you'll see a pattern that is replete throughout Scripture of God using weakness and turning it into strength. And that's what we see here. It starts out with Joshua, who is a mighty commander, a mighty leader, who is a great and victorious commander with a great army. And yet, the Israelites don't serve God anyway. And so it shifts from Joshua through the entire book of Judges of God raising up individual judges that, by the way, when we're done, each of their names tells the story of Jesus on the cross. We'll get there, though. Stick with me. At least for tonight, we find another weak man. This man born in weakness, this man who has a disability, who is able to defeat and destroy the king. I want you to think about that trajectory Can God use you then? Yes. The question isn't whether or not can God use you. The question is, why don't you believe it? And why won't you let him? You would have never looked at Jesus if you'd seen him on earth and thought, there is the next King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you read your Bible, and I'll quote Isaiah 53, verse 2 for you, nothing in his appearance would attract us to him. He was despised and rejected by men. I know you love your Western painting of Jesus, your Western idea of what Jesus looks like. You know, almost like he's from a movie. And he's got this long hair that's all blown back. And, you know, he just looks like a tall and super leader. When Isaiah said there was nothing in him bodily that showed that. 
Think about that for a second. And think about how God could use you. The Savior of the world was born poor, probably not tall, probably not good-looking, not commanding. And I hate to burst your bubble, but he's probably the last person you would have thought that would have led war against hell. And leading war against hell, he did. And won. And took a sword, the distance of a cubit, and ran it right through death. And ran it right through sin. And did it in the most unexpected way. While the Greeks were looking for a philosopher king. While the Romans were looking for another political king. While the Jews were looking for another moral king to deliver them. Heaven sent a king that would deliver us from our sins and from hell. And sent him in weakness. Paul looked at the cross and said... The cross itself is a symbol of weakness. And yet that very act is why you sit here today. Because in that moment, he took a position of weakness so that you could take a position of strength. Hallelujah. There's a skeptic. I've read all his books in seminary. I've wanted to write him a letter a few times. His name is Bart Ehrman, Dr. Bart Ehrman. He used to be a theologian and a pastor. Today, he is an atheist skeptic. He was once asked this, what would it take to make you believe in Jesus? And this is what the great Dr. Bart Ehrman said. If he would have came and ended all suffering, I could believe in him. But I would argue, what if Jesus came in strength in a way that we wouldn't see strength or recognize it when we've seen it? What if we would see Jesus' weakness and Jesus leaving us in a fight with the enemy, but relying on his power as the point of his mission? What if he came in a way to defeat evil that would lead us through suffering, come on, to a place of victory? You could say then that death, where is your sting? And grave, where is your victory? What if this, watch this, what if our main problem was not suffering on earth, but separation from God? What if the real tragedy was not that we suffer from cancer, but that we could burn for eternity in hell? What if that's the real issue? And what if Jesus came to destroy death and hell so that you and I might have eternal life? And what if he came to give us victory, even in the things that we think could overcome us? The Bible calls you more than conquerors through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Can I get an amen tonight? Number two, God saves us now through weakness while we have faith. To get this point, you have to understand how we're all trying to save ourselves. Israel was in captivity under the Romans and was trying to save itself. When Jesus came along and displayed power from heaven, they thought, this is it. This is our chance. If he's got power to heal, if he's got power to forgive sins, then he has power to deliver us from the Romans, and yet he didn't. He left Israel, just like in Judges, Israel was left with the Canaanites and the Moabites and the Midianites, just like you and I are left with certain things in our life so that we might learn to overcome through him. Am I getting through to you tonight? You see, 
We all know we need some kind of salvation. We all are religious people. We're all hoping to be saved from the misery of the things that we go through every day. But the problem is religious people try to earn that salvation through what they think they can do or what they think they can accomplish. You don't think it's you? Oh, you've heard the voice that you just need to pray more. You just need to give more. You just need to read the Bible more. You just need to do more and more and more for God. And if you did more and more and more, God would bless you more and more and more. Sounds good, but that's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. Oh, I'm not against righteousness. I'm just against you and I thinking, and by the way, so is the Bible, you and I thinking that we can earn God's victory and salvation through works. Keep it up. How's that working for you? It's been, a, it's been a solid 15 years of you trying that now. Maybe there's a better way. And maybe that's, wait a minute, God, I can't do it. But I sure know you can. And God, you know what? I'm going to trust in you. Every time I'm faced with this, every time I'm up against this, every time I'm tempted by this, I'm going to trust in my God and my God alone. Maybe the story is that God is looking for us to get to that point. Let me, let me just share with you this. In 1 Corinthians, this is the whole position of Pauline theology. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. The Jews demanded a sign. The Greeks searched for wisdom. But we preach Christ. Watch the word weakness here. Crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul says that Jesus' very act on the cross is what turns many people away. You and I know it as the strongest moment in eternal history. The world sees it as complete weakness. But we know how spiritual things work, don't we? <sighs> Number three, and the last one here. God mocks those who oppose him. <laughs> you might have missed the story here, but this story is a mockery. The reason why it has details that the enemy was fat, and so fat that the sword went all the way in, and the fat sucked around the end of the sword. The story that, that, uh, that his bowels protruded, and that, the story that nasty stuff came out. It's a mockery! Have you not read where Paul has said that our God, Jesus, has led captivity captive? Have you, you heard where Paul has talked about how in his train, God leads captivity captive? All of the things that we have focused on that we thought were really a fight. By the way, the only reason or way there can be a real contest or a fight is when there's two undefeated foes. The devil is defeated. It's not a fight. The only place that it's still ongoing is in your head right between these two cute little earlobes. Because from heaven's point of view, the fight is over. Your Lord and Savior said it's finished. That's the bell ringing. Dang, dang. And by the way, Rocky was lefty too. Just saying. God is mocking the enemy here. This actually, actually a biblical scholar by the name of Dale Ralph Davis said most commentators miss this. 
It is a humorous mockery of the enemy. That's why it's written this way. You read it and think it's gross. But God is saying, this is what I will do to the person that's trying to hurt you. This is what I will do to the enemy that tries to stop you. I'm going to make a mockery out of him. I know it doesn't look like that now, but there will be a day in heaven when every tear is wiped away. And there'll be a moment in heaven where we're going to see the pancake flipped and the script is flipped. And the devil is going to be paraded past us and we're going to go, him? That fat, impotent, weak, loser? That's what I dealt with? Him? He's the one? And we're going to go, <laughs> we don't do that now. We have the tears and the stress and the strain and the struggle. But the reality is, from heaven's point of view, it's a mockery. It's a mockery. And that's what God wants you to see. He's not only going to bring you through. He's going to give you such victory that what you faced in this life from an eternal perspective, is going to look like a joke. This is a joke on purpose in Scripture. You have to get the genre of what's going on. I'm using that word specifically, genre, because when you're reading genre in Scripture, you begin to understand it. It's a literary device. The literary device is, is have you heard the one about the fat king that got the sword the distance of a man's arm shoved into his belly. That's what God's going to do to Satan because he's messed with you. What's the punchline? <laughs> Him being thrown in hell? I want to I conclude with uh, uh, just one idea. I want to show you how this works in your life. Have you, heard of the, have you heard of the man by the name of Louis Braille? Louis Braille. Louis Braille. You have. Yeah. He's blind. A blind guy. A blind guy invented a way for blind people to read. Now, wait a minute here. Wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute here. He's blind. What are blind people doing figuring out ways to solve problems for blind people? Shouldn't a sighted person have discovered a way to do that? And while all the sighted people were so busy seeing, it took a blind kid. He was a kid, by the way. His dad was a shoemaker. His dad was a shoemaker. And one of the tools that his dad used for making shoes fell off the table one day and poked him in the eye. And it took his eye out, and the infection spread from one eye to the other. And he became blind. And you know what he did with that tool? He used it to punch little... He used it to, to take paper and put little divots and little holes in the paper so that other blind people could read. And that's how we got Braille. And if you think that your left eye or your left arm or whatever lefty issue you have in your life is your weakness and your greatest end, let me just begin to tell you that is your greatest 
area of victory with God. God's going to take that thing that was the most messed up and turn it around as a ministry. You say, my marriage is a hot mess. God can fix that and turn it around into a marriage ministry. Every marriage ministry in the United States that I'm aware of, the leaders have come from a background of a messed up marriage. Huh, wait a minute, Jeopardy moment. Do, 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 do. Duh. Just like he can take a pastor who can't speak in school and use him to preach and teach, he can use you in an area that is your greatest weakness. And turn. 